From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. As Georgia students head back to college this month, a large portion will be taking on loans to help cover costs. All while the field of Democratic presidential candidates campaign on free higher ed or loan forgiveness plans. And opponents argue about what those will cost. Nearly 43 million Americans have some student loan debt, with at least 1.5 million of those living in Georgia. I'm joined this morning by Sean Keenan, a freelance journalist who's been researching the price of higher education in Georgia, and he wrote about it for Atlanta Magazine. Sean, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for being here. Glad to be here. So a million and a half people in Georgia with some student debt, around 14 percent of the state. How much are we looking at? So that number, uh, this is no small potatoes we're talking about. That's $58.7 billion. We're, we're talking nearly $60 billion. So help us picture that number. Um, so this might be a bit of an unorthodox comparison, uh, but that amount of money could create, could build 37 Mercedes-Benz stadiums, which all Atlantans know is just this colossus of architecture. And it kind of helps put into perspective how much money we're talking about is on the the shoulders of students as they get degrees. Imagine what they could accomplish if they weren't saddled with this kind of uh, burden. Well, from your research, what's the average amount of debt a Georgia student has after earning a degree? It's more than $27,000, $27,736 to be exact. Does that amount look different when looking at public institutions or private higher ed institutions? Yes. Uh, private schools uh, typically graduate students with a bit higher student loan debt. That's 29508 uh, whereas public schools, at, at least as far as the, the five public and five private schools that we analyzed, uh, Public schools see students graduate with $25,963 in debt. Still a lot of money. Student loans in Georgia got national attention when Morehouse commencement speaker Robert Smith made an incredible pledge to graduates. On behalf of the eight generations of my family who have been in this country, we're going to put a little fuel in your bus. Now, I've got the alumni over there, and this is the challenge to you, alumni. This is my class, 2019. And my family is making a grant to eliminate their student loans. Whoa. News of Smith's promise to pay off student loans of the entire class spread like wildfire and stirred up a lot of conversations about the far-reaching effects of student loan debt, something you just alluded to. Here's Seth Frotman. He's from the Student Borrower Protection Center speaking to CBS News. As a society, we don't really understand the true impact that this debt is having, not only on individual households, but also on larger society. So we see things like student debt impacts people's ability to buy a house, save for retirement, what career they could enter. We see people with student loan debt actually make less over the course of their lives. They can't go into the careers they want. But I think where this gets really scary is we're starting to see how student debt is driving income inequality, racial inequality, because we're creating the haves and the have-nots in American society, and that is being filled out by those who are forced to take on student debt to get an advanced degree. Seth, you sp- Sean, rather, you spoke with some of the recipients of the Morehouse grant. Did Smith's gift change their plans for the future? Oh, absolutely. Uh, obviously, we don't uh, any longer live in a time where you can work a summer job and pay for a semester of college. Um, I actually reported on Robert F. Smith's gift for the New York Times, and I interviewed a, a smart young man named John Cooper, and he told me he was 
$98,000 in debt after he left college. Wow. Now that he's been relieved of that burden, he's able to apply to bigger, badder, more expensive law schools. And, you know, it just paints a picture of what other students can accomplish uh, with, with a similar uh, gift. Um, you know, you could, you could buy a house, you could take out a car loan, uh, you could take risks, make adventures. Well, besides setting the bar very high for future commencement speakers, that was a tremendous gift. But one student, $98,000, how much is this going to cost Robert Smith altogether? So the highest estimate we've seen is around $40 million. And that's that's definitely um, probably higher than the reality because that, uh, with a graduating class of 396 students, would mean each one had about hundred grand in uh, student loan debt. Um, and it's unlikely that each student is actually carrying that much, but it definitely provides some perspective as to how much these students are, are uh, weighed down by. On our Facebook group, GBB Radio's On Second Thought, we asked if Georgians are paying too much for student loans, and Lisa Covington replied, yes, we pay taxes for the wrong things. The middle class is, is taxed literally to death. We need in-state tuition, Medicare for all, you know, so she went on, but I wanted to just get to the part about tuition. What about the idea of putting tax money towards free education like so many other countries do? I'm, I'm not sure I'm prepared to talk about putting tax money towards uh, education. This is uh, we, we uh, with the Atlanta Magazine piece broadly looked at uh, the difference between the annual net price versus what uh, the tuition schools are advertising. And I'd love to get into that, actually. I'm speaking with freelance journalist Sean Keenan. He's been researching the levels of student debt here in Georgia and the cost of higher education in the state. And as he mentioned, reported for Atlanta Magazine about the gap between tuition and fees and the actual net price. What goes into calculating net price? Okay, so net price is uh, tuition fees, which includes you know everything from uh, sometimes schools require you to pay for their athletics department or you know the the fitness facilities or the library, things of that nature. It's also room and board and books, and it's all that tallied up and subtracting financial aid, which is scholarships and grants. Okay. So you looked at the gap between sticker price and net cost for 10 major schools in Georgia. What were some of the major takeaways? Um, well, what we saw was uh, some pretty stark disparities. Take uh, Agnes Scott, for example. Agnes Scott has a sticker price. We're talking 2017, 2018 tuition and fees of a bit over $39,000. Now, the annual net price, which was calculated by uh, an online database called College Factual, which takes its numbers from the U.S. Department of Education, they clocked the annual net price at $29,000. And Yeah, so keep going. What's the difference there? So what's interesting about that is that uh, schools like Agnes Scott, um, private schools specifically, provide much higher uh, percentage of their student body, their incoming freshmen, with uh, scholarships. Agnes Scott actually rewards every incoming freshman with a scholarship, and those uh, the scholarships are averaging $24,228. So among the schools you looked at, which schools had the widest gap between that sticker price and then the actual net cost? Uh, so the widest gap was, uh, interestingly enough, Kennesaw State University, which has a sticker price, uh, we're talking tuition and fees, of $6,347. Mm -hmm. Once you factor in how much it costs to live, to eat, to, to just uh, you know, survive at, at college, uh, we're talking about spending $25,453 a year. So the difference there, about $16,000-odd dollars. Uh, 19000 actually. Sorry, thank you. Yeah, I should never do math on the air. I was warned <laughs> that a long time ago. How about the smallest gap? Um, let's see. It looks like the smallest gap we're looking at uh, is at Emory University, um, which 
you know, their, their average tuition price, 2017 to 18, was a bit over 49000 and their annual net price after scholarships was a bit over $48,000. So that difference, the tuition price, in essence, is a markup? I mean, what's the what's the strategy plan there? Uh, well, I think it, it boils down to a matter of transparency. You can't, uh, you know, you can't advertise tuition and then just bring uh, the scholarships and grants that students are liable to get into that number. Right. Okay. So scholarships and grants are something that is almost a given in many of these institutions. Sure. How about which school had the highest average student loan debt? Uh, I believe that was actually Georgia Tech. Let me just uh, double check my numbers here. Yeah, that was Georgia Tech students typically leave school with $33,476 in student loan debt. All right. So you originally started your research after the Morehouse gift. That's right. What was it that stirred for you and what were you trying to get to? So this this story uh, definitely had uh, quite a few tentacles, if you will. Uh, it, it evolved uh, a lot from what it initially was, which was supposed to be a look at how other institutions could replicate um, Mr. Smith's gift. And and we reached out to other institutions to find out what their most recent graduating classes uh, were carrying as far as student loan debt goes. For uh, at Georgia State University, for instance, of the 25, or excuse me, 2,455 seniors graduating, each one had about $19,000 in student loan debt. So to pay off that entire class's student loan debt, it could cost $47 million. Wow. And, and we saw similar numbers at, at Georgia Tech. Uh, they graduated 948 students. And like we've been discussing, Georgia Tech has the highest amount of student loan debt. Uh, that would cost about $31 million. Even Agnes Scott, which is a tiny school, it would cost $3.5 million to pay off their entire graduating class's student loan debt. So uh, how easy is it to get a student loan? I would say it's... Uh, it's a lot easier than perhaps it should be. Mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of students don't understand what they're signing up for. And, uh, you know, especially I graduated three years ago and I'm only now starting to get a grasp of what student loans are and, and how they operate. And I think there's this stark disparity or at least this uh, sense of confusion about what student loans are versus what fi- financial aid is. Well, OK, so help us distinguish that. OK, so um this is a matter of confusion that I think comes from a lot of schools and how they advertise their, their sticker price. Um, but contrary to popular belief, student loans are not financial aid. Uh, financial aid is scholarships and grants, which are essentially discounts. We're talking coupons, more or less. But, uh, you know, these are usually merit-based. Um, and I talked to Bill Phelan. He's the CEO of College Factual. And if I may quote him here to kind of lay out the difference between financial aid and student loans, he said, Student loans have never been financial aid. Calling loans financial aid is something schools often get away with. But if I were a car dealer selling a car and you treated it like a car, lo- you treated a car loan as financial aid, you'd probably go to prison, or at least a consumer financial protection bureau would be chasing after you. Wow, that's a pretty heavy indictment. Sure. Well, okay. So we normally think of student loan debt as good debt, right? You know, it's like a mortgage, getting a mortgage on a house. Like you have good debt. This is something that you're going to pay off for. X amount of time for the rest of your life, probably for a mortgage. But so how are we thinking of student loan debt in a way that perhaps perpetuates that system that Phelan is talking about? Uh, Well, what Phelan told me is that a lot of students, you know, especially incoming freshmen who don't have, uh, you know, high school courses that educate them about how all this works, they just see student loans as uh, cheap or free money. They see it as the discount. They see it as financial aid. And so, you know, you could go four years of college 
essentially forget that you've you know taken on student loans and then you know next thing you know you're six months after graduation ideally you have a job but then all of a sudden you start accruing interest so how are you looking how would you advise parents you know if they're looking at the sticker price of a college and the net price what kind of research do they need to do to figure out what is the real cost um difficult to say i uh, rather than advise parents I'd, I'd like to essentially nudge uh educational institutions, especially at the uh, you know high school level, to really walk students through what they're signing up for. I mean, this is like these numbers we're talking about, $60 billion almost in Georgia. Uh, you know, this is this is not, uh, you know, just a drop in the bucket. This is some very severe money and uh, some very severe debt that students are taking on. $60 billion or $60 million? Excuse me, $60 billion. Okay. Or $58.7 billion. Okay, just checking. Atlanta journalist Sean Keenan, thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks for having me. Well, it's really stirred up quite a conversation that you can join on our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. Christopher Rayleigh did. We've been featuring authors who will be at the Decatur Book Festival, and he asked us to re-air our conversation with Samantha Allen, author of Real Queer America, LGBT Stories from Red States. Well, you're in luck. We plan to air it next week. You can leave us your comments on our Facebook page. We've been featuring a number of authors from the Decatur Book Festival, and we'll be continuing to. What do you think? Do you like to hear about authors talking about their books? Does it keep you interested in going to the festival? We'd love to hear what you think. Let us know on your, our Facebook page. Again, we're our, at GPB Radio's On Second Thought. You can also reach us on Twitter, where we're at OST Talk. You can email us, onsecondthought at gpb.org, or leave us a message at 404-500-9457. Coming up, we're going to cross state lines and hear how qualifying students stand to receive free college tuition in Tennessee. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. We're back with On Second Thought from GBB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Earlier in the show, we learned that students at Georgia's largest schools graduate with an average of $27,000 in debt. Graduates in any state can spend decades paying those loans back. Well, Tennessee is bucking that trend. The University of Tennessee system plans to offer free tuition to qualifying low-income students enrolling at its Knoxville, Chattanooga, and Martin campuses starting in the fall of 2020. It will also cover mandatory fees. The program is called UT Promise, and it is the first of its kind among public universities in the South. UT's interim president, Randy Boyd, is the architect of the program. I spoke with him shortly after the initiative was announced and asked him how students qualify? Well, they just have to earn it academically. We didn't want any students that could earn the right to come to our college through their academics to be excluded because they didn't have the finances to pay. So if you can academically earn the right to, to get uh, entrance to the one, either one of our universities, then you will be able to come free of tuition and fees. So what is that you said uh, of a certain income level? Under $50,000 is it household yeah, income? So we set the target at under $50,000. The median household income in the state of Tennessee is 48000 So over half the population in the state of Tennessee should be able to qualify for this program as long as they can qualify academically. And the HOPE Scholarship is part of the qualification, so they must be residents of Tennessee for how long? 
Uh, well, it, it would be dependent on the uh, Hope Scholarship requirements, but I believe it's 12 months. So they have to live in Tennessee for 12 months to be able to qualify. So why this program in Tennessee and why now? Well, the, the mission of the University of Tennessee is, uh, we, as the land-grant university, is to provide a ladder up for the middle class and the working class. If you look back in 1862 and President Lincoln uh, helped uh, – initiate the Morrell Act, which created all the land-grant universities across the country. Our mission was to be the ladder up for the working class and the middle class, giving them an opportunity to a better education, a better job, and a better life. And so we want to make sure we fulfill that mission. We want to measure our success not by our exclusivity. There's too many universities that seem to uh, measure and take a sense of pride in how many students they don't allow in. Uh, we want to be the opposite. We want to be a university of inclusivity and finding ways for more people to come in and, and take advantage of, of the opportunities we offer. Well, as you said, those universities and that that promise has been, or let's say that mandate has been there for more than 100 years. How has it not been fulfilled? I think over the years, and uh, part of it because of the way state funding has changed. You know, 20 years ago, 70% of the funding that went to public universities came from the states. And then gradually, as states have had tighter and tighter budgets, it's declined to only about 30%. And the difference has been borne by the uh, students. And so college has gotten more and more expensive. And so we're worried that we're making it more difficult for some of our uh, uh, lower income uh, students to be able to come. So this takes takes care of that. If, if you're uh, less than the 50% of the uh, the household income in the state of Tennessee, you'll be able to uh, be able to enter our, our colleges free of tuition and fees. So what is it particularly about Tennessee and actually your personal story, which is very interesting. Your background is in business. Prior to becoming interim president of the UT system, you were chair of Tennessee's Higher Education Commission first in your family to graduate from college at UT. So how did education become the priority for you, both personally and, and then as a policymaker and administrator? Well, I, I owe a lot to the, the opportunity to be able to come to the University of Tennessee. I was the first in my family's history to come to UT, or the first one in my family's history to ever graduate from a university. And um, it meant so much to me in my life. And I've been dedicating the rest of my life to trying to give back. And I believe that education is the inflection point of everything. If you want to give back, the best place to give back is to provide other people the opportunity to get a great education. And uh, post-secondary access has been one of the bigger challenges across the country. And so we started small with a small pilot in Knoxville uh, to send students to community colleges and technical colleges free, matched with a mentor, which is extremely important, and requiring them to have some skin in the games, a community service project each semester. Um, that led to something called Tennessee Achieves, which led to something called the Tennessee Promise that now sends every student in the state of Tennessee to Technical Community College free of charge. We created an endowment, so it's guaranteed forever. And uh, based on those ideas and that experience, uh, we created the UT Promise. How did you pay for college? So um, my dad made me a great offer that I look back on, I think was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me. He said, look, I can't, I, we can't afford to pay your way to college, but I can give you a job. He had a factory. So I ran injection molding machines, two 12-hour shifts, the midnight shift from 7 p.m. on Saturday night to 7 a.m. Uh, Sunday morning, and then the same thing on the Sunday night, which didn't do much for my social life, but uh, did allow me to graduate from UT uh, with honors and with no debt at the age of 19. Wow. So, Randy, a lot of people are going to be eligible for this. How are you going to pay for it? 
Well, it turns out that the University of Tennessee system will, has about $295 million a year in uh, tuition and fees and scholarship support already. About $136 million of that comes from the institutions. Um, we estimate this cost to be about $5.9 million a year. So it's roughly 1.5% of the total and only about 4% of what the institutions do. So we believe it's at a very affordable range. Um, but uh, And the part of that is because many of these students already are going to be qualified for a high percentage of Pell and HOPE. Uh, but the other way in which we're going to uh, uh, offset the cost is through our volunteers all across the country, um, the, the alumni that, that believe in the program and believe in the future of our students. And so we're creating an endowment, much like what Rice University did, to do a similar program. And that endowment, we believe, can cover the cost for not just in the short term, but forever. And uh, so that's a big project that we have going on just now. Well, until that the endowment comes through, it is the state taxpayers who are helping to fund the system. It has What has the feedback been from them on this program? Well, we're going to. We're not asking for any additional state dollars. We're finding ways to reallocate uh, funds within the system and save money in other areas. My guest is Randy Boyd, interim president of the University of Tennessee System and architect of an initiative called UT Promise, which covers tuition and mandatory fees for qualifying low-income students. How does the UT Promise program differ from other state-sponsored financial aid programs? Well, this just builds on top of the state program. You know, the, University, or the state of Tennessee has a HOPE scholarship program just like uh, the state of Georgia. And while that's a great benefit, unfortunately, the, the tuition and fees has increased at a greater rate than states have been able to increase the HOPE scholarship. So now there's a gap. Uh, when the HOPE scholarships were created at the time, they were thought to be able to cover tuition and fees. Now they don't. So the UT Promise covers that gap. What is the tuition for a student at UT now, average? So on in-state, at the when we have three campuses, at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, it's a little above 12000 At uh, UT Chattanooga, around 9000 UT Martin, around 8000 How many students do you project? Will your enrollment increase greatly after this? Yeah, we, we hope so, and that's the idea. Um, we're estimating somewhere between 1,600 and 2,000 additional students in the next, in the next year. One of the parts of UT Promise is matching students with volunteer mentors to help ensure success, um, reading from the UT website. How are you identifying mentors and how will they help students? I think that's such a critical component. So it's not just about access. It's great getting students in, but if they don't graduate, if they don't get out, then we haven't, we haven't lived up to our, our, our mission. And so we, it's not just about access, it's about success. And to do that, we will be matching them all with volunteer mentors. We'll get mentors from faculty, from alumni, from other people in the community to match up with them. And we know we can do it. And with Tennessee Promise, the statewide program for community college, each year we recruit 90, over 9,500 uh, mentors. We train them. We match them with students. So this isn't uh, something new that we have to invent. We just have to uh, model after what we're already doing in our state. Yeah, so this is, I think this is a big challenge here. Uh, I was reading recently about Stuyvesant High School, you know, the, in New York City. It's one of these yes. high-performing schools. And, and in high-performance schools, people know about this entrance exam to get into it, but students in lower-performing schools completely unprepared because they weren't taught or, or it wasn't prioritized. So how are you communicating the UT promise? What is available throughout the K-12 system there in the state? Yeah, so we, we, we're working on a plan now, but we, one of the key parts of this whole program is to communicate this statewide 
and not just to graduating seniors, but to kindergartners and their parents. Because I think our biggest challenge in our state is our culture, a culture of low expectations. And that culture is based on the assumption by many parents that they can never afford to send their children to school. So we're hopeful that we can begin to let them know that if your if your child will work hard academically to earn the right to come in, money won't be a barrier. So we're hopeful that not only will we increase access and success, but we'll change the culture of the state of Tennessee, one of higher expectations for our children. And lower uh, student loan debt. That is going to affect the future in a, in a huge way, I would imagine. Yes, absolutely. We're, we're already one of the, uh, the lowest states in the country for a student graduation date across the state. Um, but with this, I think it will dramatically lower it still. Now, this is something that has been a big deal on the presidential trail. Multiple progressive candidates have talked about running on universal higher education, so free higher education. Have you been contacted by other states in the South and elsewhere that want to create a program like this? Well, yeah, I'm on on the board of College Promise, which is a national organization that has been promoting this uh, nationally. Um, I think that, you know, that Tennessee had the advantage of starting small. We were an overnight success. It took us 10 years to get there. Hmm. It started off in Knox County, moved across 26 other counties, then made it statewide. Now the UT Promise is building on on that model. So we've had a long time to work on it. But there's an opportunity for other states to do this as well, and I'm hopeful that they do. Randy Boyd, if you're looking 10, 20 years into the future, what do you see in this program and how it's going to pay off? Well, one of our missions also is to support the state, and the state's mission is to complete what we call the drive to 55. By the year 2025, we want 55% of our population with something beyond high school. It doesn't always have to be a four-year degree, but some certificate or skill beyond high school. Today, we're at 42%. A key part of what we need to do as the University of Tennessee, being the leader in providing talent for the state, is to make sure we're doing our part. And this will help us do our part so the state can be successful. That is University of Tennessee System Interim President Randy Boyd. We talked about an initiative called UT Promise. Starting next year, it will cover the tuition and mandatory fees of qualifying students who study at specific UT campuses. I spoke to him shortly after the school system announced the program. We'd like to know what you think of UT's program to let students go to school for free. Do you think Georgians pay too much to get their degrees? Was your education worth the loans you are now paying back or have finished paying back? Join the conversation on our Facebook group, GBB Radio's On Second Thought, or on Twitter at OST Talk. We got a comment on Facebook after our conversation with Deborah Murdoch yesterday about a social and emotional learning initiative in Cherokee County Schools. Scotty Harris writes, please start with low-income students and single parents first, and adds a few exclamation points here as he brings up location and living condition and school absentees. And ends by saying, I'm just reflecting on how I became how I am today. Strong faith in God growing into an adult. Well, thankfully, nobody called me on my mispronunciation of Etowah. I think I said Etowah. Whatever your comments are, you can leave them with us on our Facebook page. Again, OST Talk on Twitter. And we might just read them on the air. And now from free tuition to free mental health care, an emerging city champions grant is making that possible in Macon, where Nancy Cleveland secured money to help make services more accessible. GPB intern Emily Rose Thorne went to check out the program. So that's our real short talk about melanomas and other skin cancers. 
and the best way to protect yourself from them are what? That's Dr. Harry Struthers from Navicent Health Center. He's leading a program called Walk with a Doc in Central City Park. Each month, he delivers a short talk on a timely health topic. Then, he spends an hour walking with participants to answer their health questions in a free, casual setting. The program came to Macon last year thanks to Nancy Cleveland, a communications professional who pitched the project to Navison. The success of Walk with a Doc prompted her to create a similar program focused on mental health. With the help of grant money, she will implement a series of mental health pop-up gyms called Headspace. You don't have to have a mental health issue to come enjoy it. I really wanted to do something that young professionals can enjoy because even for myself, I've dealt with um, a lot of stress and anxiety, maybe even bouts of depression before. The pop-ups will have therapists on site to show participants what services they can access. The state of Georgia ranks 47th when it comes to therapy access, resulting in a grade of D from the nonprofit Mental Health America. One in six Georgia residents lives with mental illness including substance abuse disorder, and about 20% of them are uninsured. Cleveland said Headspace will address this lack of access and other barriers that contribute to Georgia's failing grade, like social stigma. It seems far off, it seems unaffordable, and especially for people of color and or women, it just seems like it's something that's not even for you. It's not marketed to us. I also want to introduce more of that education to our community, especially here in Macon Bibb, where the county is predominantly African-American and throughout central Georgia. Headspace will also demonstrate that not everyone needs traditional treatment. Pop-ups will feature a Zen garden, complete with complimentary tea, yoga instruction, and guided meditations. I want people to understand that it's not just sitting down on the couch, telling all your problems and waiting to get a pill. Cleveland looked to other cities for inspiration while developing her approach to mental health. In San Francisco, Alexa Meyer leads a mental health pop-up through her company, Orchid. I think the main thing was just how easy we were making it for people to get started in taking care of their mental health, but also to learn about the different options that are out there. Often people feel like they're the only ones feeling a certain feeling, but when people come to the pop-ups, they see that there are all sorts of different people there that are there to take care of their mental health and well-being. Back in Macon, Cleveland says she's no stranger to the challenges surrounding mental illness treatment. She was born here, but taken to live with relatives in New York at two months old while her mother battled drug addiction. In 2014, Cleveland moved back to Macon to obtain adult legal guardianship of her mom. Once I had that control, I was able to put her in the treatment center, and I just started thinking, how could I have made this easier? On the most recent walk with the doc, she met a woman named Sheila, who grew up with Cleveland's mother. She didn't remember my name. She remembered my face. She knew she grew up with me. Yeah, I would say, that's Brenda. You would stop and say, Brenda, where you going? That's why I think, again, like, it all goes back to trying to do programs like this. Not to say that because she walked with a doc, she would have you know, changed her life. But right. I just think that if we have more things in place, we can avoid losing such a bright spirit like that. For GPB I News, never... I'm Emily Rose Thorne in Macon. Coming up, meet the new dean of Georgia Tech's College of Computing and learn about his work with artificial intelligence. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. We hear a lot about how artificial intelligence is changing technology and could change the world, whether discovering a cure for cancer, taking over our jobs, or turning on us to overtake the planet. But still, we love having it. 
My name is Alexa and I'm here to say, I'm the baddest AI in the cloud today. From using Alexa and Siri to choosing what to watch on Netflix, there is a gap in how we use and how we think about AI. Charles Isbell was named Junior Dean of the College of Computing at Georgia Tech on July the 1st. He specializes in AI and is here to help sort through some of the real-world applications and potential. Hello and welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. So we have a lot of notions about what artificial intelligence is. How do you define it? Well, there are a lot of definitions of AI, uh, including some that are very, very technical. But I have a couple that are my favorite. Yeah, I want the fifth grade version. <laughs> well, my favorite one is pretty simple. It's it's the art, the science, the engineering, the computing, the mathematics of building systems that if people did those things, we would consider them intelligent. And so what that means is, as a person who works on AI, I try to work on problems that computers can't yet solve and people kind of can solve. Okay, so it makes us that much, it gives us more, even more potential to solve problems. Yes, and in fact, is at its best when it works with people. So it's just one facet of a broader computer science industry, but it's moved very quickly in recent decades. So what is driving this rapid development in the field? Well, what's driving AI is the same thing that's driving computer science. It's what's driving all of our big technological changes. There's two things. One is the ubiquity of data. We are recording everything about ourselves, all of our interactions. My car knows where I am. My phone knows where I am. Every time you go to the airport, everyone in the airport knows where you are. So there's all of that data. And at the same time, we have computer systems that are now fast enough to be able to process that data and detect patterns in them. And that's really driving everything about technological change. But that, okay, so go to the car knowing where you are, your house knows where everything, your appliances in some cases know where you are and what you're doing, which opens us up to spying or hacking. That's one of the fears. Auto-tagging our photos on Facebook uh, opens us up to privacy concerns, but we live with it. So users are trading vulnerability, which is real, for convenience, which is also real. So how do you think AI has made our life easier or even more complicated? Well, it's made it easier mainly because it's made things more convenient for us, right? I get in my car and my car immediately has decided I'm going to go home and goes ahead and throws up the, the map for me and gives me the opportunity to figure out the best way to follow traffic and which way to get home more quickly. I ignore it most of the time, but, you know, it is still a useful thing to do. Uh, Siri uh, predicts the things that I'm going to need to do next, and I take advantage of it all the time. Right? So those are the ways that it's made our lives simpler. The things that we do over and over and over again, it learns how to do it. It learns how to help us do it more efficiently. On the other hand, it's made our lives more complicated because just like computers can make us do things well more efficiently, it can make us do things poorly more efficiently. So all of our built-in biases, all of the things that we do, we don't do well. We can now do faster and better. Well, the biases is a big topic for you because you've you talked about the people who are designing this technology, what they bring to it. And you've pointed out that it's not the most diverse group, certainly. So how might the experiences or backgrounds of the people in the developer's room affect the end product, how we use it, how we see it, and how it delivers? Well, it's a very simple thing, right? You, Everyone comes to any problem with uh, a set of experiences and a set of assumptions about the way the world works. And basically, at the end of the day, most human beings make the same mistake over and over again, which is they assume everybody else is motivated by exactly the same things they're motivated by. So if you are not surrounded by people who've had different experiences, who might be motivated by different things, you design systems that don't reflect the needs of people who are not like you. Now, this is easy to fix. 
right? You just bring in more and more people who have uh, more diverse backgrounds, who come from places or wanted to solve problems that you want to solve. And we know that when you do that, you get better products in the end, you get, uh, you get better services, everything in the end is better. Well, historically, there's been a lot of innovation coming mostly out of the Bay Area, certainly, some out of New York City. But in recent years, Atlanta has become a technology center in the South, particularly for African-American men. Mm -hmm. So what do you think has drawn them to this area of technology and how can you encourage more? Well, so there's an interesting premise in the question. I think it's less that people have been drawn to this area than they were already here. Uh I think if you want to have a diverse workforce, there's a couple of things you can do. You can convince people to hop on a plane or hop in their cars and drive halfway across the country and live someplace they haven't been, or you can come to where they are. If you're in Atlanta, you're surrounded by a diverse population with a particular set of experiences. You should be here where the people are rather than force them to go to the other side of the world where you are. Ah, So develop the talent that is there. Develop the talent that is there. Help them to uh, accomplish the things that they can accomplish and the things that they want to accomplish. How is AI playing a role in Georgia communities and industries today as you look over the big picture? Well, in, in every way possible. I'll tell you something I, I learned a couple of years ago that sort of amazed me. Uh, we are one of the centers of uh, building robots that debone chicken. So apparently that's a really, really big thing. Uh, And we're at the center of it. Georgia Tech and particularly GTRI, which is our applied research arm, uh, puts a lot of energy and effort into that. So it's not the things that are obvious to you, the the series, the Alexas, your car can drive. Those things are kind of obvious. That's where you think everything is. But the truth is they're deboning your chicken. They're picking your fruit. They're making differences at the very low level. And it's affecting every single thing that you do. Which is one of the fears that people have, that the robo-apocalypse is going to take over all of our jobs. And by some projections, hundreds of millions of jobs will be taken over. So what, which jobs are particularly vulnerable? We know that, you know, in a lot of the professions where repetitive labor is being replicated by robots. What do you see? Every single job. Yeah. Every single job is Yours, vulnerable. My, your, your job, my job? Every job but mine is vulnerable. <laughs> Uh, every single job is vulnerable. And there are a couple of reasons for this. One is that everything that we do is ultimately repetitive. In fact, uh, in my own research, one of the things that I discovered is that you can predict what pe- people are remarkably predictable. I can watch you for a weekend and know everything about you. The second thing I learned is that people hate being told that they're repetitive, but they are. We know that we have machines that can do a better job of determining whether someone is likely to have cancer than doctors who have been working on this their entire lives can. Everyone is vulnerable in that sense. But the good news is that even though everyone can have parts of their job taken away by computers, remember, they're more efficient than we are and they don't get bored. If we work with them, then actually everything turns out to be better. If the machines are partnering with us, if the algorithms are partnering with us, then allows us to do the things we're good at and allows the machines to do the things that they're good at. I'm thinking of, you know, how people kind of react a little smugly when they hear that, um, uh, for example, Elon Musk, he said he's going to automate his entire Tesla workforce with robots. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't work out. So we're a little bit happy about that. We're, a little, we're just a little bit happy <laughs> We're just that. a little bit. Well, first of all, why didn't it work out? And then I want to get to, like, what is going on with us emotionally when we get challenged by this? Well, the reason it doesn't work out is because the problem keeps changing, right? If you automate away uh, your note-taking, so you have a computer that you can look at your notes for, well, that just frees you to do other things that you didn't have time to do before. So 
parts of the job goes away. Uh, part of the things you used to do are no longer available to you. But now you can do other things you couldn't do before. And you just can't catch up. The machines just can't catch up as we keep changing what it is that we happen to care about. So is that one of the reasons – I want to pick up the, the what we're afraid about after. But is that one of the reasons why when we think about, you know, by 2019, we're all going to have uh, assistant robots. We're going to – you know, moving sidewalks, all of these things are going to have changed – is that why it hasn't kept up with, I guess, our projections because the technology isn't there, because things keep changing? I think it's because things keep changing. What it is we want to accomplish changes every single day. And that's perfectly fine. In fact, that's good. Otherwise, we would have nothing to strive for. Uh, and I think that once we have automated cars driving us everywhere, it will free us up to do other things and there'll be more problems to solve. The problems will never go away. The machines at their best will just help us to work better on the problems that we happen to care about. Charles Isbell is with us. He's professor and new junior dean of Georgia Tech's College of Computing. Well, thinking about the future of the field often provokes this anxiety. I know I'm focusing on the anxiety. That's probably telling you something. I'm going to start with that. Here's an iconic clip of AI gone bad from 2001, A Space Odyssey. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Yes, the robot takeover. And that's from the 1960s, right? What, 1968? People have reimagined the many twists on machines so far advanced that they think for themselves. Is that something that you or your colleagues actually imagine as well? I mean... Sure. I mean, most of us got into this. Well, I got into this for the deep philosophical questions. Are we actually going to be able to build something that's as intelligent as we are? What would that mean? What would it mean to grow something like that and have something that might live for centuries? What, what, you know, what could we do if we, if we had that sort of thing? So I think a lot of people are motivated by that. Uh, I don't worry about it. I think that if we build a hyper-intelligent thing, it will be bored with us. But I think the idea that we're going to build a hyper-intelligent thing anytime in the next century is... Highly unlikely. Well, maybe here we should distinguish between ANI or artificial narrow intelligence and AGI or artificial general intelligence. Mm -hmm. Is that helpful? It is helpful. So if most people, when they think of AI, think, think of uh, commander data on Star Trek The Next Generation, mm -hmm. for example, something that's just as intelligent as we are and probably strives to be human and to have emotions. And that's fine. In fact, I think that that's very motivating. But Everything that we do has automation. Everything that we do has AI in it already. Uh, and each one of those things is AI. I will tell you the hard part about being an AI researcher in the end. It's not the problems you have to solve. It's that every time you solve some problem, people decide it's not AI anymore. What, what do you mean? Well, you know, you, you've pushed to the point where we can recognize people. You've pushed to the point where we can drive cars pretty well. But that's not really AI. You're just using some kind of trick, right? I think fundamentally it's because if we admit that we are doing a pretty good job of building truly intelligent things, then uh, it means we aren't as special as we want to yeah. think that we are. And We've, I think much of the fear is not about losing jobs. I mean, some of that is there. Much of the fear is that we're not special. But we are special. We will remain special. It's perfectly fine. Well, I look at some heavy hitters. Bill Gates and Tim Berners-Lee uh, recognize the promise of AGI, uh, but also each voiced some concerns. And, and Stephen Hawking declared that AGI could spell the end of the human race. Now, these are really heavy hitters and big thinkers. How do you reckon that fear with the way that you think of, you know, positively about it? So I think it's very simple. I think they're making a category error. It's not that uh, AI can't destroy us all. Of course, it can. All tools can hurt. You know, we can all hurt ourselves with our tools. But the way in which they imagine it, I think, is wrong. It's not that 
the Terminator will rise up and Skynet will come and, and rain fire across the planet. What's actually going to happen is that we are going to change radically the sort of cultural setting in which we live by building these machines that go faster and faster and do more and more things. And we will not react quickly enough with regulation. We will not act quickly enough with the way we educate people. And it will cause economic problems. It's not going to be the machines rising up. It's going to be us not thinking about how building those machines change what we do day to day. Right. If we do predictive policing, what does that mean for legal uh, legal framework or, you know, the whole judicial system, for right. example? By the way, that's a great example. And it tells you sort of the mistake that people make with AI. So I think something like 38 states use some kind of uh, um, uh, machine to, or some kind of algorithm to the, determine whether you're likely to commit a crime again. But it turns out we don't have any data that tells us whether you commit a crime. What we have is we have data on whether you are arrested whether you are indicted, whether you are convicted, not whether you commit a crime, but we conflate the two. And because that's a mistake that humans make all the time, the machines allow us to make it more efficiently. So then what do you do? You say, well, this is where all the crime is being committed. So that's where we're going to put all of the police, which means, of course, you will find more crime, which and it just goes on and on and on. And you make, make things worse by making them more efficient. AI also has great potential to redefine relationships to each other. In the movie, Her examined what it would be like to have a deep relationship with AI. Here's a little clip. She's totally amazing. You know, she's so smart. She doesn't just see things in, in black or white. She sees this whole gray area and she's helping me explore it. And we just bonded really quickly. So how far away are we from something like her or certain episodes of Black Mirror, let's say? And how might that change the way we interact with one another if we have this companion who is generated by algorithms giving us the feedback that we want? So we're far away from the full-blown AGI, but we're not very far away from something that people would treat uh, as if it's a full-blown intelligent companion. People are remarkably good at this. If you've ever had the experience, and I'm sure you have, of talking to a three-year-old or a four-year-old, what do you do? You change the way you speak to them. You talk very differently. You focus on different things. Humans are excellent at adjusting the way they, they talk to others and adjusting the way what they expect of others. And we are already there when it comes to being able to build systems that people feel good about, they feel a connection to, uh, and help them feel better. Well, you have two children, 14 and 11, I guess, years Absolutely. old. And you're also a professor uh, to plenty of other digital natives, right? Are their relationships to or their questions about this technology different from yours or maybe from mine? <laughs> they are different. Um, that What they have is they have, it's always been this way. It has always been this way. My son, uh, before he could even speak, he, was, he was, uh, wasn't even three years old yet, uh, would come and figure out ways to trick me out of my uh, iPad because because he wanted to play games on my iPad. And for him, this is just a natural thing. They look at YouTube on their little phones. They don't watch TV. It's very, very different. They're living in a completely different technological world. And for them, the idea of intelligent things that support them is not at all weird or strange. And their children, it will be completely different. This won't even be a con the conversation that we're having now will not be a conversation that even occurs to them. What do you think that conversation will be in the future? It'll be, you know, what's next? Is it okay if I, you know, marry my robot and then want to divorce my robot? Is that actually okay? What does that mean? Big field divorcing robots. It's the future. <laughs> It's the future. We may be worried or scared, but also deeply drawn to it and fascinated. So what do you think drives that kind of complex relationship to this technology? Well, I think it's two things. I think that uh, the idea of something intelligent that we might build or we might create or help mold, it's it's the thing that drives, drives a lot of us. Uh, 
uh, for what we do. But the other thing fundamentally is we are social creatures, right? Human beings want to be a part of a larger group and being a part of uh, an intelligent device that talks to you and acts as if it is as intelligent and cares in the same way that you do about the same things. I mean, we're just driven to that in general. So anything make you nervous about the growth of AI? Uh, only that we set the expectations incorrectly. I have two concerns. One is that we set the expectations wrong and people think we're going to be someplace we're not going to be um, and don't take advantage of that. And the other is not directly related to AI. It's that we are not educating uh, everyone we need to educate to be a part of this revolution. And if that's the case, we're going to, the next generation is going to be having a completely different conversation about the digital haves, the digital has have nots, and whether the robots are taking their jobs away or the robots are helping them with their jobs. And that's not a place that we want to be. Charles Isbell, thank you so much for speaking with us. Charles Isbell is professor and John P. Emley, Jr. Dean at Georgia Tech's College of Computing. Well, you can join the conversation on our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. What do you think? Are you afraid of what the future brings with AI? Or do you feel like you're getting dependent on it? And did you know that your chicken is being deboned by robots, by the way? On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Our engineer is Jesse Neiswanger, and our senior producer is Amy Kiley. Thanks so much for joining us today for On Second Thought.